So, some of you may remember way back when the sun was still shining and we were all wearing shorts. Um, and before some of you hopefully managed to get away for a bit of a break, we were looking at the book of James. Um, and what James had to say about how we become more mature followers of Christ. So, following the series of wonderfully talented speakers over the summer, we couldn't leave you hanging without finishing off this easygoing, light-hearted book. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to James chapter 4. The words should appear up there. Amazing. Right. Sit back and get comfortable, because this is a fun chapter. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people. doesn't mince his words, this guy, does he? You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God, against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think script, Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. This is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. <sighs> Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them, or judges them, speaks against the law, and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a short while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. So, have you missed James? <laughs> Sorry, I, someone, someone lost their, well, left their phone lying around. So, um, if this is your phone, I don't think it is because I think I know who it belongs to. But if it's your phone, come and find me. Um, they're not getting a call, so it's fine. So, as I said, we've been looking at marks of maturity and what are some of the things that mark who it is we've been called to be as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ. What are the things that when we look at our lives and in the lives of those around us in the church, 
are the things that make us say, yes, I want that in my life. These things pretty much match up what I've read in the Bible, what I'm starting to see here in my heart, and also out there in the things that I choose to do. What Neil has um, been calling marks of maturity. And just like he was before the summer, James is drilling down into our attitudes. What's going on in our hearts? He's like a dog with a bone, and he's just not giving up. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, seriously, dude, just give us a break, man. Last time I was up here, we were looking at the tongue, and then our very own James Wake um, dealt with bitter envy and selfish ambition. I'm still trying to process all of that and more. Um, It was great to have a few weeks off, and um, we had some amazing speakers over the summer sharing stories of Jesus with us. Um, But it would be nice to come back to a chapter on when the sun shines, why don't you go to the beach and chill? Well, sadly, chapter four is not that chapter. James keeps our feet to the fire. He's not letting us off the hook that lightly. He wants us to understand more about these hallmarks, these characteristics that define us as mature followers of Jesus. And verses one and two pick up from where chapter three left off, where we were looking at some of the conflicts and tensions that had broken out all over the place. So verse one, um, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So clearly there's been a lot of fighting going on. Some biblical commentators treat these verses as a kind of general lesson drawn from the world at large. Um, In other words, look at the world around you, read the paper, watch the news, log on to Twitter. I'm just going to leave these somewhere else. Um, Thanks. Um, And all these conflicts that you see happening, wherever they may be, they're caused by frustrated human desire. And we don't have to look far to find conflict in this day and age. Whether it's Brexit, Leavers versus Remainers, or uh, further afield, the Myanmar government versus the Rohingya people, or Donald Trump versus, uh, take your pick. Um, (laughs) People want something, and when they can't get it by peaceful means, they resort to quarrels and violence. And this makes sense. It certainly allows us to take the reference to murder in verse 2 literally rather than metaphorically. Having said that, I think that James is talking about the church, and it's like he's using the language of violent conflict as a metaphor to describe what's actually happening in the church and in our hearts. So when he says in verse 1, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, there's something close to civil war happening within the congregation of this church. Not this church, the church that he's talking about, Um, (laughs) just to be clear. Uh, People are sticking their knives into each other, if not physically, then verbally and emotionally. And why were they doing that? Basically, people weren't getting what they wanted. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have. You covet, but you cannot get what you want. So you quarrel and fight. Literally, don't they come from your desires which battle within your members? James is thinking of the men and women who make up the body of the church who are fighting with one another. 
And once again, for any of, any of us who've been around churches for, I don't know, any longer than five or ten minutes, um, we don't really have that much difficulty in identifying what James is talking about here. We all have our own ideas and opinions about what should be going on in the church, what should be happening on a Sunday morning, what should be happening in our small groups. Um, we all have our own perspectives, our own little bugbears. We all know which way we'd like things to go. We all know how things need to be to make me feel a bit more comfortable. But the trouble comes when we don't all quite share the same opinion. And most of us don't always share the same opinion. Problems develop when we don't all have quite the same preferences, and so we realize we don't all necessarily agree. And the real trouble starts when things don't go our own way, or when decisions are made which we find hard to swallow. Like, I can't believe they canceled church on the 29th of July just because of a few bicycles. Or, I can't believe they've stopped using that thing called the city. Or, I can't believe they got rid of bacon butties on a Sunday morning. Um, <laughs> Neil, Neil's not here, so I can open up Bacon Gate again. For, for, um, for those of you who don't know, um, many years ago, the, part of the setup team's job, so the house groups used to run setup on a Sunday morning, and part of the setup team's job was to, um, there were two people who were allocated to cooking bacon and making bacon butties for the setup team and the worship team, and which was amazing if you were on the worship team or on the setup team. Um, not so amazing if you were the one having to cook the, cook the bacon because you just smelt like bacon for the rest of the day. Um, but what happened was is that newcomers would arrive at church and walk in the door and go, bacon. <laughs> and then look around and there were no bacon butties because they had been eaten already. And if, if the worship team hadn't managed to finish off the bacon butties, then certain children who knew about the bacon butties did find them and finished them before any newcomers arrived. Anyway, bacon gate. Now you're all educated on that. You'll all be familiar with Matthew... Sir, no, just sorry, just to finish off bacon gate. When Neil and, Neil and Kate decided they were, they were going to stop bacon butties, there, it was... It was worse than Brexit, actually. <laughs> um, I think the, the church almost split over it. Uh, so, but it's interesting because we found out what our sacred cars were in the church. <laughs> um, anyway, you'll all be familiar with Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. What you may be less familiar with is the modern paraphrase translation. For where two or three gather in my name, there are always seven or eight different opinions. And because of that, so much depends on how we react, what attitudes we adopt when we find ourselves in that situation. Because the truth is, unless we're careful, such conflict of opinion can all, can all too easily lead to fighting and quarrels. James says that when we don't get what we want, we can very easily resort to sinful tactics. We covet, we fight, we kill, all over a bacon butty. Just like common criminals, we'll stop at nothing, even if it means we deprive or hurt someone else in the process. 
And so these sudden arguments, what James calls fights, as well as longer-term feuds, which he calls quarrels, these can easily become the MO of church life when we can't or don't get what we want. So how do we maintain the right attitude? What exactly do we need to do? Well, the place to start is not so much in our attitude to one another. What's crucial, what comes first, James says, is our attitude to God. And there's two main points that we're going to look at today. Um, Number one is our attitude to God, or a mark of our maturity demonstrated by our praying. And the second one is our attitude to God, or a mark of maturity demonstrated by our humility. So, prayer. So, things don't seem to be going the way we want them to. The worship team won't play that one song that we really think they should. We have to endure sticky damn donuts rather than the light and fluffy crispy creams we used to get. Or the coffee team just serve filter coffee rather than my half-calf spiced pumpkin latte. <laughs> the right thing to do is not to fight. Don't shout at the coffee team. They're just doing what I asked them to. So um, the right thing to do is to pray. Take a look at verse 3. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. We do not have, because we're not asking for God's remedy, for his solution. What James is saying is that when we have a desire, something we really believe ought to be happening, and it doesn't seem to be materializing, the right way to go about it is to ask God for it. John Wimber, who started this stream of churches called The Vineyard, had this to say about it. When we think we have options, sorry, we think we have options when we criticize, but really we don't. For you and me, there's nowhere else to go. Unless the Lord expressly moves us on, we don't have the luxury of leaving this church as an option. We're stuck with it, and we're stuck with one another. He goes on. We're in this together, so when things aren't right and criticism is accurate and justified, Don't criticize, but call out to God. Because when we criticize, all we're doing is agreeing with hell. John Wimber is just below James. (laughs) (laughs) So, we've got a choice to make. Are we going to stand with the devil against the church? Or are we going to stand with Jesus for the church? To seek the Lord in desperation is real intercession. And such desperate prayers are the ones the Lord loves to answer, such as, Oh God, we're not seeing your hand at work here on Sundays. Send your Holy Spirit. Or, Oh God, Mike's preaching is awful, and Neil and Kate keep letting him preach, so please save us and send your Holy Spirit. Or, Oh God, we long to see people coming to faith. We long to see people's lives being transformed by an encounter with Jesus, so please send your Holy Spirit. This is one of the reasons that prayer is so critical for us. It's on our knees, as it were, that conflicting ideas, aspirations, preferences, that we we find their resolution. Not through strife or hostility and fighting with one another, but through prayer. And if what we want is right, then God will bring it to pass. And if he doesn't, well, as we see in James 3, When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And he has a very important lesson about prayer, and especially unanswered prayer. So many of us treat prayer as a form of magic, magic, kind of like my attempt to get what I want by supernatural means. Just in case you weren't sure, prayer isn't magic. And that's because it has nothing whatsoever to do with getting what I want and everything to do with getting what God wants. And prayer is the battleground where our wants dissolve in the face of God's will. You see this in verses 13 to 15. Listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why? You, don't, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while, a little while, and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Prayer is us surrendering to, do, surrendering to God to do what he wants. It's not a way of manipulating God to get what I want. We say, I've used the official Christian incantation. Stuck my hands together, got down on my knees. I prayed the same words that are in my little book of spells. Now where is it, Lord? It's as if we think we've pinned God's arm behind his back so that we can squeeze whatever we want out of God if only we pray hard enough or long enough. All the many promises in the Bible about prayer have to be interpreted in the light of and against the backdrop of John's words in 1 John 5, verse 14 to 15. It says this, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know, and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. And the key phrase is, according to his will. Yet sometimes, we seem offended by this limitation on prayer's effectiveness. And we sort of feel cheated when we're told that the only mountains we'll actually see moved are the mountains that God wants moved. And it kind of makes sense if we think about what we really want in any other way. Would we really want God to promise unconditionally to do anything we asked, to do anything we want, I don't know about you, but it's a pretty terrifying thought for me. Just think of all those fairy tales where disastrous things happen when some wand-waving fairy or some genie out of a lamp grants three wishes and the mess that usually ensues. When Lindsay and I first um, arrived in the UK 14 years ago this month, um, living in London was plan Z for us. We were like, okay, Lord, we'll... We're going to go to, I think we're planning to go to Cambridge um, or anywhere but London. And we both got jobs in London. We ended up living in Canary Wharf. Um, We did move to Peterborough for a brief nine months, which was our time in the wilderness, as we like to call it. And then (laughs) he very kindly brought us back to London. So do we seriously believe we're ready to wield such omnipotence that God will answer every prayer that we put before him. Prayer is not a selfish blank check God is obliged to sign. Prayer is us countersigning a check God has already made out. And so there'd be no, verse, no need for verse 3. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. We're asking not because we're interested in seeing God's purposes done, 
but so that we can get our wants fulfilled. The motive is all wrong. And that sort of prayer isn't acceptable to God, which you see in verse 4. James's kind words again, brace yourselves. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Hands up who wants to be a friend of the world today. <laughs> he seems to be saying here that the attitude of only being interested in fulfilling my plans and my wishes, it's all about the marvelous me, is actually the essence of the spirit of the world. The very selfishness that rebels against God's authority and makes men and women his enemies. We have to exchange the I must get what I want attitude for submitting to him and being anxious to please him and desiring what he wants. So, the second mark of maturity is demonstrating our humility. Verse 6 says this, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. God gives grace to the humble, but God opposes people who assert and insist on getting what they want. So once again, it's all about our attitude. Our proud and aggressive attitudes are all wrong, James is saying. Look in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. That word humility keeps coming back in each section we've looked at over the whole Marks of Maturity series we've been doing. It's a key mark of maturity, and here it is again, an essential quality of true maturity. And from what we can see, it would appear that it was a lack of humility that was at the root of all this disorder and quarreling in the church that James was concerned about. Now, we tend to confuse humility with submissiveness, meekness with weakness, thinking that the natural way to establish self-esteem and dignity is by being aggressive and super-assertive. Stand up for yourself. You've got your rights, is the message which is shouted from all corners of society. James is saying that Christian maturity banishes that kind, that kind of basis for self-esteem. Our sense of dignity doesn't come from what we can force others to think of us. And no one knew this better than Jesus. Jesus who exemplified it perfectly as we see in John chapter 13 verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. There was nothing submissive about Jesus. Jesus didn't suffer from any kind of inferiority complex. He knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus, the most secure person the world has ever known. And it was precisely because of that security that he could engage in such acts of extraordinary humility. Humility is really only possible for one who is secure. The one who doesn't feel they have to prove anything to anybody, but simply knows deep within themselves who they are in God. 
once we truly know who we are, once we know who God has called us to be, once we truly know the name that he has given us, no matter what our outward appearance, our looks, our income, our nationality, our giftedness, our popularity, whether we want to leave or remain, once we know that our heart, once we know that our hearts, who we truly are, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, is noble and destined for glory, that we're free from the need to be aggressive and assertive as a means of self-protection. We are free to be humble. It's, it's that Christ-like spirit of humility which is born, which is born of deep inner security that James is encouraging here. Submit yourselves to God. Come near to him, and he will come near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. As we do, as we do that, we discover that in God's eyes, we very much are somebody. And we will no longer feel the need to fight anyone to prove it. And the extraordinary thing is that out of this attitude and spirit of prayer and humility, we find that peace and harmony begin to rise up in the church and in our relationships with one another. We'll look at verse 11 and 12, and then we will finish. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. What James is saying is that if you get these things right, you'll stop slandering one another. You see, because once we've submitted to God, once we recognize who we are in him, we no longer feel the need to sit in judgment on other people. We start to agree with James, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? And so we realize that not only, not only do we have the right to, not only do we not have the right to judge our neighbor, but you do not have, but you do not know what we no longer, sorry, I've recently got glasses, and I'm not wearing them today because I can't see you if I wear them, so let me try that again. So we realize that not only do we not have the right to judge our neighbor, but do you know what we no longer even want to? So men and women of prayer, men and women of humility, that's who we are, and that's who we want to be, and that's another two joyful marks of maturity from James. Why don't we get the band back? <laughs>